Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Today's reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, and it can be found on page 311 on the Pew Bibles. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in the house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place in a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David that this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your way your name great, like the names of the greatest ones of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to, to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom." He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by human beings, with floggings indicated by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to Daniel all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dara, and good morning, everybody, including those watching online. As we were singing a few moments ago in the children's song about A thousand years before the birth of Christ, a former shepherd boy called David became the king of Israel at 
the age of 30. Within seven years, he had conquered Jerusalem, made it his headquarters, and had an opulent palace built of stone and cedar wood. Meanwhile, the Ark of the Covenant, the chief symbol of the nationhood of Israel, languished in obscurity for years in the home of a man named Abinadab. In the chapter before the one that Dara has just read to us, we read that David brought the ark into, up to Jerusalem, or he arranged for it to be brought, with a great procession and celebration and music and dancing, and he had it housed in a special tent in Jerusalem. That's the context of what we heard in today's reading. In what seemed like an inspired moment, it occurred to David one day that there was something deeply inappropriate about him living in a grand cedar palace while the ark, the very symbol of God's presence, remained in a mere tent. So he mentioned this to one of his most trusted advisors, a man of God named Nathan. And Nathan's gut reaction was to agree with him. He advised the king to go ahead and do whatever he had in mind and assured him that the Lord was with him. David decided to build permanent accommodation for the ark. He began to make plans for a temple to rehouse it. But it was revealed to Nathan that this was not what God wanted. God was content for the ark to remain, for the time being at least, in its tent. And so God gave Nathan the difficult task of breaking that disappointing news to the king who had set his heart on it. And what we heard in the reading from verses 5 to 16 is a record of what God told Nathan to say to David. And then at the end, in the last verse that Dara read, we heard that that was just what Nathan did. And the message God gave through Nathan for David comes in three parts. First... God explains why he is content for the ark to remain in its tent. We read in verses 5 to 7, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. And that's a period of about 400 years. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to one of their rulers, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God was content with a tent. And in verses 12 and 13, God explains to David that he is not the one to build the temple. That privilege will fall to his successor, who at that time had not even been born. Now, David's desire to build something grand for God was well-intentioned. He and his people thought of the Ark of the Covenant as the place where God dwelt. They felt that they had to go to that tent in order to meet him. 
And in the message given to Nathan, God went along with that idea. I just read in verse 6, I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling, God says. Now we know, of course, that God was never confined to a tent. No tent or temple or cathedral, however grand, could contain God. Years later, God allowed Solomon to build the temple where the ark was housed in the holiest place. And the temple is described by another prophet as a house of prayer for all nations. Now, the second part of what uh, God said was to remind David of what he has already done and is doing in David's life. If you know the story, you will recall that God rejected his predecessor, Saul, the first king of Israel, who was a great disappointment to God. And he sent Samuel to Bethlehem with instructions to anoint one of the sons of a man named Jesse in anticipation of that son becoming Saul's successor. Now David, Jesse's youngest son, was the most unlikely candidate. He wasn't even invited initially to meet Samuel. But he turned out to be God's choice. He was out looking after the sheep at the time, and he had to be sent for. And the rest, as they say, is Old Testament history. That was some 25 years earlier. David has now been established as king. He's achieved military success. And this has led to a period of peace and prosperity. But God reminds him where he came from. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And then this next verse, as I read it particularly last week, struck me very forcibly in view of what's happening in Palestine now. God continues, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore and it struck me that is what the British government intended in the Balfour Declaration of 1917 it's what the world hoped for when the modern state of Israel was founded in 1948 and yet look where we are who can fail to be upset and deeply disturbed by the events that have unfolded in Palestine in the past eight weeks. We surely feel abject horror at the brutal murders of men, women, and children and the taking of hostages by Hamas on the 7th of October. And I hope we react with equal horror to the extent of the suffering caused to ordinary Palestinian men, women, and children in Gaza by Israel's response to that action. 
I don't suppose that I'm the only one here who at times in the last few weeks has been moved to tears by what I've seen on the TV screen or read in the news feeds. On Friday, the seven-day truce that gave a glimmer of hope came to an end. How can we begin to imagine the pain and disappointment felt by the families of hostages who have not yet been released? Or the equal pain of the families of each new victim of the renewed bombing of Gaza? We were told last week not to allow the news to fill us with fear and anxiety. And that is wise. But I don't believe that a superficial scanning of the headlines is sufficient to inform us reliably about what is going on in the world and equip us to pray meaningfully for the Holy Land and the many other important issues that the world faces. As Christians, I believe we have a duty, according to our ability, to read and listen to reliable news sources, to be discerning about what we read and hear and allow that to inform our thinking, our voting, and our prayers. And I'm painfully aware that no comment that I make will help us to understand the complex uh, situation that exists in Palestine. The best I can offer, and I do so adopting the words from verse 10, is to say that we must surely long for the day when the Jewish people and all the citizens of modern Israel have a home of their own where they will no longer be disturbed and wicked people will no longer oppress them. And we must equally long for the day when the Palestinian people who live in Gaza and the West Bank also have a home of their own and they too are no longer oppressed. Politicians call it the two-state solution. I believe we need to pray that into existence. And we need to allow the news to inform our prayers and the Spirit of God to shape our prayers. But this is Advent, and we're really wanting to look at the third part of the message from God that Nathan delivered to David. It's about the subject that has always troubled monarchs succession to the throne. Every king wants an heir and a spare. God makes a promise to David about the succession of his kingdom. And the promise comes in two parts. First, in verses 11 and 12, there is the immediate succession. The Lord declares to you, said Nathan, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And this was fulfilled in David's successor, Solomon, even though Solomon was not his oldest surviving son. It's an intriguing political story, that succession, and it's told in the first two chapters of the first book of Kings, if you want to go and read it after lunch. The sort of story that sells Sunday papers. 
In short, Solomon, who was not the oldest son, was David's preferred choice to succeed him. And when David was dying, Nathan and David's wife Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, ensured that David named Solomon as his successor in preference to his oldest surviving son, Adonijah. And to make sure that that happened, Solomon was even anointed and crowned and sat on the throne before his father died. Nathan's message then informs David that his successor will be the one who is allowed to build the temple that David longed to see. And he says of the as yet unborn successor in verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Years later, David explained this to Solomon. His explanation is in the first book of Chronicles, chapter 22. And it makes interesting reading because we discover the reason why, David, why God didn't want David to build the temple. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And the name Solomon sounds like and may be derived from the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. God desired a man of peace to build the temple rather than a warrior like David. That, it seems to me, speaks volumes about God's nature, about God's desire not for war, but for peace, about how God sees that Middle East situation we've just been thinking about. And notice what God said about David's successor. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God's promise was not limited to the immediate succession. It has an eternal dimension. And this is reiterated at the end of Nathan's message. In verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David wanted to build a house for God. Instead, God promised to build a house in the sense of a royal dynasty for David, one that would last forever. But at first sight, that promise would appear not to have been kept. At the end of Solomon's reign, there was a civil war with rival claimants to the throne. And the outcome of that was that Israel split into two kingdoms, Judah 
in the south, under Solomon's son, the harsh and unwise king Rehoboam, and Israel in the north, led by the rebel leader Jeroboam, who was not descended from David at all. And so from its inception, the northern kingdom, Israel, ceased to have a descendant of David on the throne. But David's line continued in Judah for 350 years until the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BC. After that, Judah lost its independence and the monarchy fizzled out. I say the promise appears not to have been kept. 350 years is a long time, but forever means longer. Did God break his promise? This troubled me last week, puzzled me for some time, but I think I found the explanation in some words that David spoke to Solomon shortly before he died. And we find them in uh, the first book of Kings, chapter 2. He urged Solomon to walk in God's ways and to keep the law. And then he summarized the promise like this. This is David to Solomon summarizing the same promise we've been looking at that God gave him. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. If. David always understood it to be a conditional promise, conditional upon the faithful obedience of his people. And sadly, the people were not always faithful to God. And the exile was the consequence, and with it, the end of the monarchy. But all was not lost. Solomon had been the first fulfillment of God's promise. The Jewish people began to look for, uh, from the time of the exile, they began to look for and expect a second and greater fulfillment in a descendant of David who would establish the eternal kingdom that had been promised. That person they called Messiah, meaning the anointed one. He would be, in the words of the great Advent hymn, great David's greater son. And that brings us to the New Testament. The gospel writers convinced that Jesus was that Messiah and wanting to persuade their fellow Jews that he was the Messiah, took every opportunity they could to show that the events surrounding his birth, his life, and his death fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. So, for example, Luke's birth, in Luke's birth narrative, the angel Gabriel says of Mary's yet-to-be-conceived son, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Matthew and Luke both make a point of tracing the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph back to David and beyond. Unfortunately, they trace his lineage through different sons of David, and all the names are different down to the name of Jesus' grandfather. 
So we don't know which of them is accurate. But the important point on which they agree is that Jesus was a descendant of David. Or, as we will refer to him in our closing hymn, a true branch of Jesse, David's father. Matthew and Luke are the two gospel writers who bring us the story of the virgin birth, which lies at the heart of our Christmas celebrations every year. It's perhaps the best-known part of our New Testament in the world outside the church because of the people who come to church once a year. But here's a thought. If the virgin birth is a historical fact, it means that Jesus was not biologically descended from David. Jesus was not in the words of Nathan, a successor from David's own body or uh, his own flesh and blood. If you are one of the many Christians who read the, the birth narratives as a profound theological truth, but not necessarily historical, that would not be a problem for you. But if we regard them as historical, then those words, your own flesh and blood, or from your own body, must be regarded as applying only to Solomon, the first fulfillment of the promise, but not to the Messiah. Luke was aware of this slight inconsistency. When he wrote the genealogy tracing David's lineage from David, it begins, Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. He evidently considered that to be the son of Joseph's wife, and therefore legally the son of a descendant of David, was sufficient to be fulfillment of the promise. St. Paul makes no reference to the virgin birth in any of his writings, but he regarded Jesus' descent from David as, in, as important. In the opening sentence of his letter to the Romans, he describes Jesus as God's son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. And there are several other places in the Gospels and the other New Testament writings where people refer to Jesus as son of David, including, of course, the Palm Sunday crowd. We as Christians recognize Jesus as the longed-for Messiah. We celebrate his birth and life as the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to David. But the fulfillment still remains incomplete, of course. Jesus did not replace Herod. He had no palace, and his throne was a cross. And yet the inscription on that cross identified him simply in the words, King of the Jews. Jesus spoke a lot about his kingdom. In one sense, we live in his kingdom now, for it exists wherever he is acknowledged as King of Kings, wherever his teaching is followed. He also spoke of a time when he will return with great power and glory to redeem us. Then he will restore the kingdom, not in Israel, 
but in the new Jerusalem. The season of Advent is not merely the precursor to the Feast of Christmas. It's a season for thinking about all that went before the birth of Jesus, the years during which God planned a further and greater fulfillment of his promise to David. It's a season in which we not only prepare to celebrate the birth of the long-expected Messiah of the Jews and the Savior of all mankind, but we also look forward to his final return when he will reign as son of David and son of God. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Thank you.